is two weeks to Election Day when Cleveland will choose its next mayor. And we're talking a little bit about that contest today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Atassi. It's a Tuesday. You think we'll get some work done today? <laughs> well, I mean, do we, we normally not work on Tuesday? I don't know. It didn't feel like we did a lot of work yesterday. We were, we were kind of Ouch, Quinn. <laughs> we got to do some work today. Let's begin with the work of this podcast. What is the new policy for the Cuyahoga County Diversion Center that should be a big help for people with mental distress? Laura Johnston, we ran an op-ed advocating for what we're about to talk about about a month ago, and I didn't think it was in the budget, but clearly the money is there. This is an enlightened move. Yeah, this is good news. Starting Monday, the first responders no longer have to wait for individuals to commit crimes before offering them treatment at the County Diversion Center. Referrals previously had been reserved for people who exhibited signs of mental illness or addiction who also were accused of committing nonviolent, low-level crimes. Now, any person that law enforcement or EMS believe need help with mental health or addiction service, they can they can take them there. And so hopefully this will mean a lot more use for this $9.2 million program. Well, the, the, the op-ed we ran basically said it's not a true diversion center if it's not available to all. The diversion center shouldn't just be for people who commit crimes. You ought to be able to get into the diversion center before you commit a crime. So if police see somebody walking down the street screaming at the moon under duress, they can talk to that person about possibly going there, getting them some help. Or if they come across somebody who's dealing with the, the results of addiction, even though they may not be committing a crime at the time, they can get them some help. It's a pretty big deal. I guess this means that if you're a family member of somebody who's having trouble, you could call the police to come and help you get the person into a diversion center, right? Yeah, it seems like it, that anybody would be eligible for this. And I mean, I don't know how it happens if someone doesn't want to go, but hopefully people would want help. And then this would allow this to be used a whole lot more because in the first three months of operation, it served only 43 people, which is really very few. Um, then in the last two months, 32 more. And this well, is this was gone. designed to reduce the jail population. And so far, it's not doing that. It's too early to, to know. But I also think the, the ministers on the east side, when they were really lobbying for mental health help for people a couple of years ago, they were thinking of a diversion center that was much more widely available, not just to people that commit low-level crimes. So it's a big step forward. Good move for the county to, to do it. And clearly, they must have the money to pay for the extra people that'll go there. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to see more on the county budget coming up. It's budgeting season. And this is at Oriana House on East East 55th Street. So, so far, we're not seeing a whole lot of use from suburban police departments. Only about 20 suburban and ancillary police departments have brought people to the center. But hopefully they'll realize that this is a really good resource for a whole lot of people. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the unenlightened position that the Mayor Frank Jackson administration has taken on the county's new diversion center for the mentally ill or drug addicted? And how would the two candidates seeking to replace Jackson deal with that position? Leila Tassius is a huge disappointment because Cleveland is single-handedly killing the efforts to reduce the population in the jail by making the diversion center a big obstacle for police. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. The, the city prosecutor, Akilah Jordan, had been insisting that before Cleveland police take a suspect to the Cuyahoga County Diversion Center, her office and the victim in the case, if there is one, would have to sign off on diverting that particular suspect into treatment instead of jail. And that policy really prevented the diversion center from living up to its potential. Almost no one was using the facility. Cleveland Police is the biggest law enforcement agency in the county, and they couldn't really use the center without the prosecutor's blessing, basically. So now, you know, as Laura was describing, the county has decided that a person doesn't need to be charged with a crime to be brought to the facility. And so police and first responders can bring anyone there who appears to be in having a mental health crisis or, or other addiction issue. And the county hopes that that will prompt this uptick in the number of referrals they're seeing because the cops don't have to ask the prosecutor for permission to bring someone there if that person wasn't accused of a crime. So it's kind of this workaround, okay. you know, as, yeah. So so I had thought when the city originally announced its policy that, that the upper levels of the administration just hadn't heard it yet because it's dumb. I mean, it's a stupid position to take to give red tape to police to get them to the diversion center because they won't do it. I figured once this became known that the, the, the Jackson or some of his cabinet would say, OK, OK, cut it out. Let's make sure we're using the diversion center. But not the case. They're they're digging in. They're making yeah. this ridiculous. So so for now, Cleveland's not using it. So we went out to ask the two candidates for mayor. What would you do? And what did they tell us? They both say that they would rescind this this policy. They say they believe in diversion. They would not stand for a policy that that hamstrings the use of this really valuable resource. You know, Akila Jordan's policy here has been, you know, it's been brewing controversy for months, really. Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Dave Mattia, who oversees the county's drug court, wrote her a letter in June telling, asking her to scrap this policy. He pointed out that the prosecutor's office is only open from 8 a.m. to 4.30 on weekdays, you know, and, and like 8 a.m. to noon on Saturdays. That really limits the time Cleveland police officers can use that this facility that's supposed to be 24 hours a day. So, Yes, Justin Bibb and Kevin Kelly came down on the right side of, of the issue pretty strongly. They, you know, so, um, you know, Jackson, though, has been pretty silent on it. Sounds like he is at least tacitly standing by Akilah Jordan's decision on this. Well, he had the chance to, over, I mean, this became news. It bubbled up into the news. So he had the chance to call her and say, cut it out. And he didn't. This is why right. people are looking for change. It's a very stagnant administration. This is just dumb. I mean, this, this thwarts the whole, everybody got together. Every level of the justice system got together to talk about having a diversion center, to try and give better justice to people who are mentally ill or drug addicted. So the whole system. And then Cleveland unilaterally is spiking it with no real discussion and no real rationale. It's just bigfooting it. And this is why so many voters are very excited that come January, the, this administration will come to an end and we'll have some fresh views. Hopefully they'll be true to their word and get rid of this policy and get this diversion center in action. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. One way to differentiate all of the people running for the U.S. Senate in Ohio is to ask them which senators they would emulate if they won. Lisa Garvin, they were asked that. What did they say? 
Well, there's an interesting dichotomy in some of these choices. Um, let's just run down the choices first. Uh, Josh Mandel picked Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah, and said he's a preeminent constitutional scholar. Jane Timken's choice was Marsha Blackburn, the Republican from Tennessee, who says she knows our constitutional rights. And then uh, Rand Paul was the choice for Mike Gibbons, Rand Paul, the Kentuckian. And uh, Bernie Moreno didn't pick anybody. And Matt Dolan chose Tim Scott, the Republican from South Carolina. Um, J.D. Vance, no surprise here, he named Josh Hawley, uh, the Republican from Missouri, calling him a thoughtful person. Ha ha. But the interesting twist here is that Mandel, Timken and Gibbons, their choices, who they emulated, voted to certify the 2020 elections. So but Timken and Mandel both said if they'd been in Congress, they would not have voted to certify results. So I wonder if they're trying to play both sides of the fence and maybe realizing their base may not be enough to get them elected. I, the the fact that J.D. Vance says Josh Hawley, Josh Hawley is the, the signature bad guy of the January 6th mm-hmm. uh, insurrection. I mean, he was he was in there. I mean, the photos of that day where he's, you know, ready to have his big moment fighting the certification of the election. And then all the Trump followers storm the place. And he he was a goat for for weeks after that to say, I want to be like Josh Hawley, <laughs> who in their right mind would say that J.D. Vance is just turned into such a loon. It is interesting that the others did pick people who certified the election and clearly they put some thought into what they said. So it was a it was an interesting exercise. I still have no idea how voters are going to differentiate between these candidates because they all kind of stand for exactly the same thing. And so if you have six or seven people all saying the same thing, all making the same promises, how do you pick? I hold your nose and close your eyes. I mean, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, if I were voting Republican, I, my choice would be Matt Dolan, but I'm maybe a little bit more informed than a lot of voters. Well, I think Matt Dolan will be the pick of the people that don't want Trump sycophants, and that could give him the lane to get in there. It's just, can he get that get that message out? Anyway, interesting story by Andrew Tobias. Check it out on cleveland.com. Cleveland's going to have a star-studded Rock Hall induction ceremony in a couple of weeks. Laura Johnston, they finally released who the presenters are. They had been rumored but not discussed publicly. Who are they? Big names. Paul McCartney is the biggest probably, and he's going to induct the Foo Fighters. He appeared the last time in 2015 at Public Auditorium to induct Ringo Starr. A couple other, well, I mean, the list is really long, but megastar Taylor Swift is going to induct Carol King, and singer Jennifer Hudson's going to perform with her in King's honor. Angela Bassett's going to induct Tina Turner. She portrayed Turner in this 1993 film, What's Love Got to Do With It, got an Oscar nod for it. Also honoring Turner are Christina Aguilera, Mickey Guyton, H.E.R., and Brian Adams, and then superfan Drew Barrymore is going to induct the Go-Go's. And we don't even know all of the folks. I mean, that's just the list that we got yesterday. Yeah, whenever you can see a Beatle live on stage, it's a pretty big moment. I mean, that, that that is the royalty of rock. They made a big impact. When he was on stage with Ringo Starr six years ago, it was a, a huge deal. Interestingly, Billy Preston, who played with the Beatles on the Let It Be album, is also being inducted. He's 
It's the late Billy Preston, uh, but it doesn't sound like McCartney will be inducting him. There's a lot of buzz about Billy Preston, Paul McCartney, and the Beatles now because over the weekend, the big Let It Be super deluxe set with all sorts of outtakes and conversations was released. So the Beatles fans are all talking about that now, two weeks before McCartney gets on the stage and Billy Preston gets inducted. Big moments. There's still some tickets available. They say it's sold out, but the last time I checked, it was 1,400 tickets available. This may this may mean it sells out. I think people want to go see McCartney on stage. Any word on Beyonce? No, we do not know, but the class of 2021 also includes Jay-Z. So we don't know who's going to induct him. Um, and also, I should say, Lionel Richie is going to handle the honors for Amit Erdogan winner Clarence Avent. So that's another big name. These are big draws and they're all coming to Cleveland, which is pretty cool. So where can uh, we go see him? Where's the celebrity <laughs> sighting? Yeah, right. Right. I don't know if there'll be some kind of I would there's gonna there's be a, red, a red, carpet, red carpet, but I don't think right? it's public. I don't think I think it's gonna be like as I understand it, filmed and then provided. I don't think they're going to expose people to the air and mike norman our arts and culture writer believes that beyonce and jg will just show up because that's what they're known for doing and of course there'll be accommodations made to give them good seats we'll see you're listening to this week in this cle there appears to be still growing rancor between some members of city council and the council president, Kevin Kelly, about the direction they're taking on spending the stimulus money. It kind of erupted again Monday afternoon. Leila Tassi, what's the story? This is this is <laughs> the story. I just love it. Cleveland City Council held their second working group meeting this week to try to set their own priorities for how to spend that enormous half a billion dollar windfall from this from the federal stimulus money and and during this 2 hour meeting yesterday council members suggested things like uh, you know nonprofits that they'd like to fund and they said they'd like to see the money go towards senior transportation services and summer youth jobs and councilwoman Jasmine Santana mentioned that many residents struggle with language barriers to access city services so she was wondering whether the city could create you know a new program to address that their goal is to finalize their priorities by November 1st so that they, so they're working pretty diligently on that but the elephant in the room <laughs> is the fact that mayor Frank Jackson's proposal for spending the money his way is still running through the committee process as if it's destined for passage and and as if Kevin Kelly, the council president, is just humoring his colleagues by going along with this working group process. Councilman Kerry McCormick, who aspires to be the next council president, I should say, brought this up and he asked Kevin Kelly, "What gives? Why? Why are you know? Why do they? Does it seem that it's like a runaway train?" And McCormick asked whether there will be any action on the mayor's uh, legislation that he put forth. Uh, you know, it's 122 million dollars in spending, and Kelly said, "If there's legislation that goes through three committees, it gets the vote of council. It's assumed that it is therefore a priority of council, and I'm not going to ask that everything be halted until this is put forward." Which he, you know, by this he means council spending plan. And McCormick said, "Well, wait a minute. Is there?" Will there be any real chance for us to make amendments to the mayor's spending plan before it's passed? And Kelly just said yes. And I just want to throw it's... out there. I just want to say once again, Kevin Kelly left the meeting a half hour into it because he said, his, you know, he said his daughter was going back to school and it was his last chance to see her off. 
and he handed off the meeting to Blaine Griffin. But this is the second time he's left one of these meetings, which shows that he just doesn't prioritize this process. And council seems to care a great deal about it. It's really odd the way he's dealing with this. I mean, the council got together, majority in council got together to call their own series of meetings because they were so unhappy with his transparency and his work on this. And they're moving apace. They're having the real discussions that we had thought they might have months ago. And yet while they're doing that, he's Kevin Kelly is shoving through the mayor's plan, which clearly there's dissatisfaction with. And part of it is this public safety thing where, which we talked about earlier, where it's basically almost a military style weaponry for the police, which members of council are troubled by because they want things that build a better relationship. I, I just, you wonder if this comes to a head at some point where the majority of the council say no to the mayor's plan. We're not going to pass that in a council meeting despite what Kevin Kelly's trying to do, you know, and in two weeks, we, we should know who, who the next mayor is. And if Kevin Kelly loses, as most people expect, is he going to be this dangerous lame duck council president for the next two months trying to go against the will of the fellow members? Very odd what's happening here. It really is. It really is. And, you know, you mentioned that that public safety spending piece that was discussed. And in, in, that's part of this kind of omnibus legislation, they should have peeled these into separate pieces. Don't you think? Don't you think that would have been a better approach? I mean, if the mayor wanted to get some of it passed, he should have take, broken it down. You know, give give council a chance to pass spending on the things that are easier to discuss. You're going to have huge conflict over some of those issues related to public safety. And that could potentially hold up the entire piece of legislation. Right. They should have they should have broken it down and had individual purpose. There was one other element of this meeting that really stood out to me. And it was when Kevin Conwell. Oh, yeah. Normally is a fairly reasonable guy, I think threw down on lead paint. They I wanted know. to give what, 17 million, which is not enough. They should be right. giving 100 million to this, but they wanted to give yeah. 17 million to the lead safe initiative. And he said, ah, that's too much. I don't want to give a big amount like that. We should break it into 5 million. And of course, Robin pointed out he had no such qualms in voting for 20 million for a program for broadband for which <laughs> there are no details. That was my favorite details. line of the story. I, I actually texted her last night. was like, that's my favorite line of your story. The subtle dig at, at the fact that they just like rubber stamp this random, you know, legislation to to put the the broadband thing from a few weeks ago. But yes, Kevin Conwell said, you know, we we should just break it down into increments of five million. And when they show us progress on the lead paint issue, we'll give them another five million. And Carrie McCormick pushed back on that and said, well, if you give them the 17 million, it helps them leverage that with, you know, other matching grants and other other money sources. You can't just like piecemeal you know, the crap out of it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like well, the, the contrast between this and broadband though, was, was so on the money because they spent two years, two full years talking about how to attack lead paint. There is a fully developed plan. You know exactly how this money will be spent. They should be giving them a lot more because this is the biggest threat to children right now. And yet 
they all defend what they did a few weeks ago with broadband where they put aside 20 million dollars with absolutely no plan for it and nobody questioned that now you know where was kevin conwell then where was anybody then they didn't do their due diligence with that which is what mccormick keeps pointing out yeah well carrie mccormick was the only one at the on at the table that day who who stood up against that one and was like he's the, you know the famous the now famous quote of you know did i just miss two years of research uh or or how did we arrive at this um yeah this is going to be interesting i mean honestly this is this is some of the hardest working you know working groups these working group sessions i i don't recall seeing council work this diligently on an issue in a very long time so they are really focused on coming up with this list of priorities and you know making sure that they're heard before this gets rammed right through the process well, and we haven't seen a divide like this on council in really probably oh, decades eons. now. Yeah. So, I mean, you, th it's healthy. This is what you should have. You should have debate. You should have people questioning the direction. For far too long, it was a big rubber stamp. Uh, and it, depending on who gets on the council, if any of these challengers to the incumbents win, we could have a much more activist council going forward. So the new next mayor uh, may have many more challenges. You know, <laughs> getting, that's... Well, I just wanted to say also that made me think about, um, you know, Seth Richardson has been working on profiles of Kevin Kelly and Justin Bibb. And, um, you know, he was saying how Kevin Kelly had told him during during interviews that his his leadership style as council president is to have the conflict behind the scenes with the administration, to not really show the public rancor between council and the administration, to, to iron out all the glitches ahead of time and then present kind of like a united front sort of you know approach. And I wonder if Kerry McCormick becomes a council president, will that dynamic change dramatically? Because he has shown a different kind of leadership style emerging here. Um, I'm throwing the flag. There was no conflict behind the scene. They, there was no resolving <laughs> the conflict with the administration. They were pretty much in lockstep and were a rubber stamp for the administration. There, what was? Sh tell me, you've covered it. I've been around well, a long time. I was never behind example. the scene. Yeah, I mean, well, I, me all right, I can example. think of a couple times that I, 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 you know, a couple times I did call Kevin Kelly and asked him about X, Y, Z. There are a couple issues in, that I have in mind, and 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 there were issues, the administ problems with the administration, and he was like, I'm working on that. I'm working on And it really wasn't a council issue, but he was trying to get an answer for his constituents, and then you know, he came forward. Okay, the one that comes to mind is um, when CPP uh, failed to have that advisory or the, the panel that that decides whether people's power should be shut off. Remember, I did that column on that, you know, back when, way back when. And Kevin, uh, Kevin Kelly was, you know, I'd gone to him a few times and said, you know, don't you care about this? And he's like, I do. And I'm working on it behind the scenes. So he okay. was sort of like, and yeah, so there's that. All right. There's but an that's, example. But it, Anna, it's one example. I can't really, I don't know why I can't think of others. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an interesting new new year with all of the new players. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the status on ICU capacity in Ohio? And can we expect relief soon because of dropping case numbers for the coronavirus? Lisa Garvin, we talk about this every couple of weeks to catch up. The numbers of cases have been dropping but there's always that lag in the hospitals and things aren't good there yet. Right, right. And as a matter of fact, uh, um, October's not looking good so far for a lot of hospitals. It's actually rising. But in uh, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, 
Northern Ohio hospital ICUs are 85% occupied as of October 1st. Statewide, it's about 80%. That's according to the Ohio Department of Self of Health, and 25% of those have COVID, and that was as of yesterday. Since the beginning, there have been over 77 1,120 people in the ICU since the beginning of the pandemic last year. So, but Cleveland Clinic is seeing an uptick. September, they said, was their highest volume since last winter when we were in the thick of the pandemic. 135 uh, COVID patients are in ICU, and that actually doubled from August. So if we look at the October and September numbers, everybody's seeing higher numbers. Cleveland Clinic went from 83.9 in September to 84.5 so far in October. Metro Health is up from 83.5 to 86.2. And then UH is up from, actually has the exact same numbers as Cleveland Clinic, 83.9 in September, but 84.5 in October so far. Summa Health is the only one to see a downtick between September and October, but only by about four, four, four tenths of a percentage point. So, mm, you know, we hear cases are decreasing, but like you said, this lag. So hopefully the next reporting period might look a little better. And I know that the, the death numbers are not as high as they were at the peak, but man, it does seem like every other day you hear of somebody else that's, that's died from this and they've been younger and younger. This thing has not gone away. And yet, there's still people that believe it's not dangerous and it was all a hoax. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We keep talking about the challenges of running a recycling program. And one thing that helps is if people know what they can't recycle. And we put together a list. Leila Tassi, this is kind of mind-boggling, but as we've discussed in the past, we're not even sure. So hopefully this list will help people. What are the things that are on it? Yeah, so the Solid Waste District says people just don't know how to recycle properly. And often that means that poorly sorted recyclables end up in the landfill. So basically you can recycle cans, cartons, glass, paper and boxes, and plastic bottles and jugs. But here's what you can't recycle can't recycle plastic bags and wraps because those jam up those sorting machines. Anything that's considered a tangler, like cords, hoses, chains, wires, and Christmas lights, textiles and clothing, styrofoam and takeout containers. I think a lot of people get confused about that. Um, And it's a pity because styrofoam is the worst for the environment, man. That Mm -hmm. takes like five bajillion years to break down. Yard waste you cannot recycle. Uh, durable plastic items such as furniture, toys, pipe, and flower pots. I have been guilty of throwing plastic flower pots into the recycling bin thinking that that was okay. Hangers made of uh, plastic or metal can't be recycled. Ceramics like pottery, dishes, bakeware, things like that. Tempered glass such as window panes and drinking glasses. Wood and construction debris cannot be recycled. That's actually really surprising to me, too. And batteries and hazardous materials, obviously. Please don't throw those in the recycling bin. But, you know, obviously from this list, we're all guilty of trying to recycle something that that we're not supposed to. It's probably like ruined a ton of recyclables for for my family going in, you know, straight into the landfill. You know, um, you know, and, and I think re- the plastic bag issue is particularly confusing because for the longest time we had the blue bag recycling program. So it created that illusion that bags were recyclable. I guess well, we were wrong uh, about that. This so. is Laura Johnston. I just want to say, saying that cartons are recyclable, like, explain to me what a carton is. Thank like, you. <laughs> what is a carton? I don't know. 
And we have like these a, arguments in my family about like this plastic bottle from the salad dressing. Does it have too much salad dressing and it's still recycle? Like I still have minute detailed questions about that. Yeah. Like how <laughs> thoroughly do you need to rinse out all that stuff? Oh, and peanut butter. Jeez. Right. Oh, who who has time could... to rinse out a plastic <laughs> peanut butter container? Or mayonnaise, really. <laughs> Okay, Jeez. well, obviously the confusion continues despite <laughs> our list of nine things. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What can we expect in safety precautions when the Cleveland Marathon makes its return in person after more than two years since the last running? Laura Johnson, it was canceled last year and postponed this year, but it's back this weekend. It is back this weekend, Saturday, some of the shorter races, and then Sunday, the marathon and the half marathon. Approximately 5,500 people are expected to compete in the half and full on Sunday. And that goes through parts of downtown, Ohio City, Lakewood. It really gets to the the edge of Rocky River and then turns around for the full. My husband's going to be running the half, and he's super excited. This is the first real race that he's been able to do since COVID. There is a virtual option, about 60 to 80 runners plan to do that. But I think most people are just glad they can do this in person and wear their bib and be part of the camaraderie of a really big race. Masks are going to be available. Organizers recommend that you wear them at the start and finish line. There is no requirement though, and you do not have to be vaccinated or take a test in order to run. But um, hopefully everybody will be spread out enough as soon as they start to go. So are you nervous at all? Cause you know, people are huffing and puffing and, and when you're running behind somebody that's huffing and puffing, you're breathing what they're puffing. And if they have COVID, uh, it can get to you, even though your, your family's or your husband's vaccinated. We've seen people getting the breakthrough cases. Does it give you any worry? You know, not really because I think he'll be wearing the mask at the very beginning. And I do think they spread out pretty, pretty quickly and it'll be fresh air. But I I know what you're saying. Like I marched in the homecoming parade a couple of weeks ago and nobody wore masks, but I think the majority- And you got sick. You got sick. I I did get a cold. I I can't say I got it from the homecoming parade, but you know, I was at a Monsters game over the weekend and that's inside and everybody's in their seats next to each other. Nobody was wearing masks. So I think the majority of people at this point are like, you know, oh, well. Okay, well, it'll be fun to have people running through town again. It's a little bit of a return to life, even if it has masks at the beginning and the end. And the weather, listening... the weather is supposed to be perfect for running, so that's yeah, good fifty-eight and sunny. Although it's kind of early in the week to be making those predictions. <laughs> exactly fifty-eight. You're listening to this week in the CLE. That does it for a Tuesday. We'll have more news to talk about tomorrow. I feel sure of it. I can just tell the people on this podcast are itching to get to work to generate some stories. (laughs) Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 